Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Bless the speaking and the hearing of your word. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Do you remember the first time that you experienced nostalgia? Might be helpful to, I mean, most of us, if we have experienced it, you don't need someone else to define it for you. Um, but when I think of nostalgia, I think of a, a memory, uh, not just of in my head, but also in my heart, of something in my past that I am longing to return to in some way. This usually happens, I think, for us most often with a childhood memory of some sort. And I distinctly remember the first time that I felt not just like a, a good memory, but nostalgia, this kind of heart longing uh, for something earlier. My oldest was four years old, and we took him to a pumpkin patch. And immediately, I was a kid again in the fall, starting off with school, a new teacher, seeing friends, whatever the thing was, right? I don't know, but maybe fall does that for you guys. Uh, maybe there's a reason why that's a, a desirable season for a lot of people. Um, but that was the first time I was struck by my own experience of nostalgia. And maybe that brings to mind for you uh, your own. It often does happen for us with childhood as a thing. And, and in fact, because we can be pulled back uh, into that space around childhood, we tend to also think of childhood as kind of a good old days uh, or a simpler time. Of course, that's if we're the kid asking mom and dad the question, yes or no, right? Not managing at all. Um, but we tend to think that way, even if we've had some hard experiences in childhood. Um, I don't know about you, but I tend to think of it as kind of a better experience, a better thing, less stress, less things to be concerned about. But is that actually true? I mean, is childhood a better experience than adulthood or, you know, these other phases that we have in life? I'm not so sure. So last Saturday, I was at a soccer game because this is the season where all the kids play soccer. And right now I'm a full-time soccer driver and only a part-time pastor, right? So <laughs> I'm at one of the soccer games for our kids. And the, uh, this family that's there has a 14-month-old. And they take uh, the little guy out. His name is Frank. I love this. Um, so little Frankie gets taken out of his stroller and he's set down on the grass and Frank starts crawling out onto the soccer field. So what does mom do? Well, she goes and grabs him, picks him up, and puts him back where he started. And how does Frankie feel about this? Eh! He's not happy, right? So a few minutes later, Frank, uh, I can't make up whether I want to call him Frank or Frankie, but he starts going over towards our, you know, chair flotilla of stuff and finds uh, some water bottles that we have on the ground and starts grabbing at them because obviously he's thirsty. He's parched. He's been working hard out there. And he's also a 14-month-old with uh, oral fixation, so he's just putting everything in his mouth, right? But so he grabs the water bottle and dad comes over and grabs it right out of his hands. When was the last time someone grabbed something out of your hands? 
How did you feel about it? <laughs> so disorienting. My father-in-law has a story of a friend of his. I didn't think of this in the early service, but they were, you know, they're music uh, gig musicians who travel around all the time. And uh, at one point they were out on some pier and his friend was finishing the last bite of his pizza. You know how you like save just enough of the crust and the cheesy part and he's just about to do it and a seagull comes and grabs it right out of his hands. So he knows how this feels. <laughs> but most of us don't have people grabbing stuff out of our hands, typically, unless we're in some real dysfunctional relationships. So dad grabs Frank's water bottle out of his hands, picks him up, sticks him back. How does Frankie feel? You guys are catching on. Okay? He's not happy about this. So then a few minutes later, Frank, he decides he wants to get back in his stroller. So he goes, he climbs crawls over to the stroller and he starts trying to climb back up into the thing and this time mom and dad apparently this is not a problem for them they don't care go go right ahead frank you do this okay but frank can't do this i mean his will is telling him he wants his heart want longs for that stroller and he wants to be in that stroller but he can't get in the stroller he, he's trying to do it. His body won't cooperate. I mean, this is Paul, Romans 7, written all over it. The good that, that Frankie wants to do, he can't do. Right? He cannot get into this stroller despite all of his best efforts. And how does he feel about this? Well, you guys can do better Frankies than that. Okay, he's upset about this. I don't know if his voice was that deep, but it's getting deeper every time. He's upset. Frankie is experiencing no all the time. No. No. No, even from within. He's limited. He, there's no wonder that as, as little children, that's one of the first words that we learn, isn't it? No. And so Frankie is being limited externally, by others, and we can say that it's the right thing to do, but that, whatever, his experience is he's being told no, right? And it's not just a problem out there. He is experiencing limitation from within. His own self is saying no to the things that he wants to do or be. Does this sound familiar to any of us that are past 14 months of age? Definitely. Uh, last week I was watching with my kids the movie The Sandlot. How many of you guys have seen The Sandlot? All right, fair enough. So then just tell your neighbors. I won't retell the story. Go ahead. No, I'm just, I'll tell you. So for those who haven't seen it, it's a movie from the 90s uh, that's actually about these boys, um, middle school age boys, I guess, or sixth graders, I don't know exactly, but uh, boys in the early 60s that spent all summer playing baseball uh, at this sandlot, at this ballpark. And at the very beginning of the movie, we discover that the, the main character of the story has experienced no after no after no in his life. So right, I mean, before any of the story gets going, we learn that this young kid has lost his father. His father has died. And that's a big fat no when you're a young kid, right? Right off the bat. And then there's a new man in his life, and in his mom's life, and he can't quite figure out what he's supposed to call him. So early on in the film, he keeps going back and forth between calling him dad and calling him Bill, and he's always catching himself. He's never sure what he's allowed to say. And when he asks if, uh, if Bill or dad or uh, whatever, if, you, if we can go play catch, 
uh, Bill is often very busy. So what is he here? No. Uh, his mom, they've moved to a new place. They've moved to Southern California. And so does he have any friends in this place? No. So then, I mean, baseball is the thing to do if you're a, a boy in the 60s. This is the thing. And so he's going to try to make friends through playing baseball with these kids. So he goes out to the sandlot and he tries to catch a ball. Can he catch it? No, not even close. And then when he gets the ball, he tries to throw it and he has this very awkward stance thing. He's not, he's seen it done, but he doesn't know how to do it himself. (laughs) Right. And so he's struggling, like, what do I do with this? And he, He's so afraid of even attempting it that he just runs the ball over to the person that he's trying to throw it to. And so when the rest of the team, there's eight of them, they need a ninth person to actually be a team. So they need a body. But when they're asked if this guy can join the team, what's their answer? No. So he's got his own body is telling him no. The other people are telling him no. He's hearing no, no, no everywhere except from one kid. The best kid on the team, kind of the leader of the group, is the only one who decides to say yes to him. And he gives him a mitt. He gives him a better hat because his other hat was really lame. And he even hits a ball directly into his glove. It's a great scene because they're basically saying, look, if this kid can't even catch, he can't be part of the team right? And so basically uh, the kid stands out in left field and puts his glove up in the air and closes his eyes, which is a great way to catch a ball, right? And he's just, <laughs> just putting it up there. And the, the only kid who will say yes to him literally hits the ball right into his glove. And that yes changes everything for him. That one yes completely alters his life in the best possible way. You and I, at some points or another in our lives, have been hearing no all the time. And maybe there's even a no in your childhood that threatens your present, right? How you see yourself, what what purpose you have, what value you have. Maybe, you know, I mean, I don't know how many times I've talked to people over the years in ministry where, well, I knew dad loved me. I mean, he never said it, right? But I knew it, right? So maybe you felt a no of, you know, just parenting where you weren't sure exactly what the the feeling was for you. Or maybe you experienced a no in the the one that got away, right? There's this person you thought was the one for you and they just flat out said no to you. Or maybe you experienced the no in terms of some limitation you had yourself, some failure that you still feel like you're trying to recover from or you're trying not to let define who you are. Every one of us, in some way or another, experiences a big fat no in life, and especially early on when we are kids. And so I don't know, I don't think childhood is as rosy as my nostalgia wants me to believe it is, because I think from the earliest stages of our life, what's actually happening is that we are longing to hear yes. We want to know, yes, I can do this thing, or yes, I belong, or yes, I 
matter. And it's in this context that Jesus brings children to our attention. So we heard this in Matthew 18. The disciples are asking Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we know what makes something great or someone great. Uh, They have power, right? They're dynamic. They have influence. They experience success. I mean, I'm not even picking on this. This is what we know to be greatness. My wife and I watched the other night um, Albert Pujols hit his 699th and 700th home run. And as a Cardinal fan, I was giddy about it. I love the fact that he did it to the Dodgers. It was wonderful, right? And Albert Pujols is great, right? In that category, that is greatness. That's how we understand it. But Jesus says, here is greatness. And he grabs a little snot-nosed kid, right? And sticks them right in the midst of the disciples. And it's not great because the kid's innocent. It's not great because the kid has a purer form of life than anybody else. What does that kid have? They have experienced a whole lot of no. That kid experiences a whole lot of limitation externally and internally. And that kid is longing to hear yes. And this, Jesus says, is what makes for greatness in God's kingdom. When you have experienced limitation and you are longing to hear yes. Now what's fascinating then is that Jesus continues and he starts talking about some really harsh stuff, which in our early service was fascinating because we had one of our sixth graders read this text for us. And so to hear her reading about millstones around necks and cutting off hands and gouging out eyes seems like a strange thing. Uh, In fact, we usually hear that passage of scripture kind of like as a standalone, as in if you're experiencing some, whatever form of sin you struggle with, then, you know, you got to take action for yourself. But that's not the context, right? This context is actually bracketed between this whole section about greatness in the kingdom and these little ones, so to speak, in quotes, right, uh, that are longing to enter God's kingdom. And so what Jesus is actually doing with these words is he is warning us against saying no to someone else on God's behalf. I'm going to say that again. He is warning us against telling someone else no on behalf of God, which is really fascinating because this is Matthew 18. Jesus sets up kids, the children as the greatest in the kingdom. In the very next chapter, some parents bring their kids to Jesus. Apparently the word got around, hey, Jesus can do something for my kid, right? Or something like this. And so uh, these parents are bringing children to, for Jesus to bless them. And what do the disciples do? They push them away. Hello, McFly, right? I mean, the disciples do not get this. They do not get this, which makes me feel like I'm in good company with them. Because moments later, uh, seemingly, they are pushing away the kids who are longing for the kingdom of heaven. And so what Jesus is describing for us is, look, If your hand is going to push someone else away from me, you might as well get rid of it. If your eye is going to cause you to judge 
who is worthy and unworthy of my work for them, then you might as well gouge it out. Do you see what he's saying here? Don't stand in between God's yes to someone else. And on top of that, what's fascinating about this illustration that he gives is that he's saying, look, it'd be better off for you to be limited like these little ones, whatever form that's taking, and enter God's kingdom too. In other words, don't hold on to your own you know, false version of power. You might as well embrace the weakness and long for the kingdom because my answer to you will also be yes. It will also be yes. And Jesus finishes this section by talking about sheep and a shepherd. We've been hearing about sheep and shepherds the last couple of weeks, haven't we? And here is the most concise parable Jesus gives here. He says a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one goes missing and that shepherd seeks it out and saves it. He does not say the, she- the shepherd uh, tells the, she- the sheep what it did wrong and reprimands it. <laughs> he does not put together a plan for rehabilitation of the sheep. He just rescues the sheep, right? He just saves that which is lost. He says yes to that sheep. And Jesus doesn't just do this with sheep or with little children. He does this with everybody. Everybody that has been told no by others in their lives or by their own sin, Jesus says yes to, right? If you are the sinner and tax collector, if you're the pariah in the community, what does Jesus say to you? I'm coming to your house. Let's eat, right? If you are the person no one else wants to be associated with, right? Who you have no value to this, whatever, this entity, this group, this individual, you have nothing to add. Jesus says, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus goes to people who no one else wants to touch. I was reminded of this recently because on Wednesday, I was meeting with my Iranian friend. I'm supposed to help him with his English, but he really just helps me with my sermons. And he's a moderately Muslim guy. And so he was explaining to me um, some of the practices uh, in his religion. And one of the, the ones, at least in, I guess, Ar- Iranian forms of Islam, I don't know if this is true across the board, but basically if you're going to hold the Quran, right, uh, their holy book, you have to wash your hands and your face, and then you're allowed to pick it up. Which just kind of brought home to me the total difference between Christ and everything else, right? Because it's always about what you need to do to get right, right? How you can be acceptable enough to do the thing. What does Jesus do with lepers? Everybody says no. They shout no to those people, right? Those people have heard and experienced only no in their life. And Jesus reaches out and touches them. He answers prayer, not just then, but yours and mine right now. His answer is yes. It's yes, always for you and me. And this is how St. Paul puts it for us in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Can't be said any more clearly than that, can it? You know, we talk about when we're kids hearing no, but have we outgrown this? How many of you heard no this morning? Maybe from someone else or even from yourself? How many of you kind of jump the gun on God and tell him, well, you probably, don't, probably aren't going to say yes to this, so I'll just answer it for you, right? We don't outgrow this. We experience no. No, you're doing it wrong. No, that's not the right thing. No, you're not part of this group. I mean, no is rampant in our lives, and we never seem to outgrow it. And so Jesus never tires of reminding us that his answer is the only one that matters. And his answer to you and to me this morning is yes. Jesus has taken the ultimate no of the world and of sin. That's what the cross is. I mean, it is total rejection. It is a big, fat no. And Jesus takes that upon himself so that he can say yes to you and me. He says, yes, you are loved. Yes, you are forgiven. Yes, you belong. Yes, you have purpose. And he sends us with this message to others. Yes, yes, yes. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.